If you have your Bibles this morning, if you open to Ephesians chapter 5. We've got this week and next week, and then we'll be finished with this uh, book of Ephesians. We've taken a couple extra weeks to kind of slow down a little bit and, and uh, make the most of this last couple of chapters. Found ourselves skipping around just a little bit to, uh, to finish up here, but we'll finish out the last half of Ephesians 6 next week, and then we'll take a couple of weeks. Kent and I are working on uh, Christmas messages that we think that you'll enjoy, and then it'll be 2014, believe it or not. It's upon us, and we have a lot of things in the new year we want to make you aware of, but not today. So we have Ephesians 5, uh, 22 through 33 is what we're going to look at today. We are living in a commitment-phobic society. All around us, people are just scared to death to really commit to anything. And we live in a society that encourages us just to keep our options open. Even if you are in a committed relationship or you're committed to your job or, or whatever you're committed to, whatever you may be committed to, if you are committed, our society just encourages you keep your options open. Just, just leave the doors as wide as you can because you might just find something better than what you've got and then you can feel free to leave whatever you were committed to and move on to that next thing. And this is just rampant in our society today. And it's definitely rampant in our churches. And so today's message is entitled, Stop Dating the Church. And I've been actually looking forward to this message since before we started the book of Ephesians because I'm just, I'm just fired up about this whole deal in our society. of Nobody wants to really commit to anything. And I think that the Word of God today calls us to something that's so much greater than where our society leaves us. So if you'd stand with me in honor of God's Word, we're going to jump right into the Scriptures this morning. We're going to walk through uh, this second half of Ephesians 5 together today, just verse by verse. And I want you to see today the beauty of a committed relationship with Christ and His church. Ephesians 5, beginning in verse 22, the Apostle Paul writes these things under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Let's be seated together. Father, give us insight and understanding, Lord, into your word today. And Father, not just head knowledge, but may you lead us this morning to a place where we, heart, mind, soul, and strength, renew our commitment to you and to your body that you call the church. A body that you love, that you laid your life down for. And that you've called us to love as well. Wrinkles and all. We pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. 
I want to take us toward the end of this passage, and we're going to work our way back to the beginning, and then we're going to work way through just to really confuse you this morning. Uh, we're going to be uh, starting here. I want to give you the key verse for what I think helps us to understand all that Paul is teaching here in this last half of Ephesians 5, and, and it's found down there in verse 32. I'm going to put it up on the screen here for you. He's talking about here about husbands and wives, but he comes down to the focus here, and he says, this mystery is profound. Now, the word mystery is a, is a key word in the book of Ephesians. You find it all the way back to chapter 1, all the way through. You see Paul using this word mystery, and the word mystery is not like a mystery novel. It's not like some kind of weird in the shadows type thing that we think of when we hear the word mystery. The Greek word mysterion literally means something that was once hidden, it was once unknown, it was once veiled, but now it has been made known. Specifically, when he talks about this mystery, he's talking about the gospel. Now, in the Old Testament days, no one really understood the fullness of God's plan. They knew that God was planning to send a Messiah, but many of them thought Messiah was going to be an earthly king. It was going to set up an earthly kingdom. And in Jesus' day, they thought he was going to come and kick the butt of the Romans and do all these sorts of things. It was mysterious to them. They didn't really understand it. But when he talks about this mystery, this mystery of the gospel has now been made known in Christ. So when you hear this word mystery, he's saying something that was formerly unknown that's now been made known. He said, this mystery is profound. It's deep. It's impossible to understand apart from the Spirit of God. But he wants you to know it. He says, this mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Now, now, you'll see this passage read at weddings, and I've preached this at several weddings, and, and you'll hear this read. It's probably read more often in church settings than most other passages in the Bible because you find it at a lot of wedding ceremonies. But what Paul is saying here is that the picture of husbands and wives is really meant in this passage and in our marital relationships, that the picture of husbands and wives is meant to be an illustration of a greater truth. Now, many of you are sitting here this morning next to your spouse. My lovely wife is sitting here in the front row. And as you sit there with your spouse, I want you to think this morning that what you are doing in your marital relationship, husbands with your wives, wives with your husbands, is that your relationship is meant to be a picture of a greater truth. In other words, marriage is, is not an end in and of itself. Marriage serves the purpose of illustrating the greatest truth that has ever been delivered to mankind. And Paul's going to use that picture this morning as a display of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. He begins by speaking to the wives there in verse 22. We'll make our way back to the beginning of this passage. He talks about a wife's submission to her husband. And we're going to look at a couple of the bases for this submission, but I want to explain the word submission again because, again, this is one of those words in Scripture that's considered a dirty word in our society. In and of our sinful selves, none of us wants to submit to anyone or anything. In my sinful self, I want what I want, when I want it, and how I want it. And if you don't want to give me what I want, when I want, and how I want it, then I put you in the back seat. I say the back seat because when I was growing up, we always wanted to ride in the front seat. There was something about that. I remember when we got old enough to get out of the car seats and out of the back seat, and now you could ride in the front seat. And whenever maybe just mom or just dad was taking us somewhere, my sister and I always fought over the front seat. And I usually won because I was older, pretty much is the reason. And so... But I remember those fights for the front seat. Why we wanted to ride in the front seat? Why, why do you want to ride in the front seat? Because that's the prominent place, right? That's the important seat. That's where normally mom or dad would be sitting. We would never think about sitting in the front seat if both mom and dad were going with us somewhere. Never even ask that question unless you wanted to get a beating. But whenever mom or dad was out of the picture, then one of us got to sit in that seat of authority. 
Now, there came a point when sitting in the front seat wasn't as cool anymore. It came to came like those youth trips that you take where nobody wants to sit in the front seat. Everybody goes for the back seat because they want to get as far as possible from the person who's in authority so they can do the stuff they're not really supposed to be doing on a youth trip. Yes, I know how that all works. So <laughs> I did it, and I understand. But the, the idea here is this word of submission means that I can willingly, lovingly choose to sit in the back seat and let somebody else sit in the front seat. The idea of submission, the Greek word is a military term that means I understand my rank. It's a military term that says I understand that I am living in authority under somebody else. That I'm not the ultimate authority. As a sinful person, I want to be my own God. I want to do my own thing. I want to write my own rules. But the Word is calling us to this place of submission, which says, I understand my rank that I'm a person who lives under authority, ultimately under God's authority. But He's also established various other authorities in my life. He's given others leadership over my life. As we've talked about in recent weeks, He's given parents leadership over their children. He's given bosses leadership over their employees. And these folks are not given that authority to lord it over those folks or to misuse their authority. They're meant to use it to honor Christ. But there's this beautiful place of submission that we're called to the point where in Ephesians 5.21, the key verse of, of this portion of Ephesians, it says that we submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Because we love Jesus I can sit in the back seat. I don't have to vie for the best place. I can take my seat in the back and allow someone else to sit up front because ultimately that's what Jesus did for me. I'll talk more about that before we finish today. So here it says, Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Well, why would you do that? Wives, here's a couple of reasons why. First of all, because of the husband's headship. Let's look at verses 22, actually verse 23 together. It says this, the reason being for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. Now again, don't get the wrong idea here. It's not saying that as the, as the head that the husband somehow has more worth or, so, or more importance, that he gets to, gets to be the boss and whatever he says goes. So many men live in this place. It's a very unbiblical view of what Paul is talking about, as you'll see here in the next portion of the Scriptures. But he is saying that God has created men and women with different roles, equal worth, but different responsibilities. That's how you want to think about these things. He has given men a certain kind of authority and relationship to their wives. Again, that's not meant to be abusive. That's not meant to be misused. In fact, you're going, to meet, you're going to see here in the next portion that that authority is meant to be used to serve their wives, not to cause their wives to be slaves. But you see here, he's saying the husband is the head. God created these relationships. All the way back in the book of Genesis, we see it, that God created men and women differently. Now, that may be one of those, well, duh moments for you, but we're living in a society that is increasingly trying to erase all gender distinctions. So if you were born a man and want to be a woman, well, just have an operation, you can be a woman. If you were born a woman and want to be a man, just have an operation, change a few things, and you can be a man. And even if you want to remain in the same gender that you were, our society is increasingly saying those distinctions don't have to really mean anything. But let me say to us, folks, when we erase gender distinctions... We erase the very basis for things like Ephesians 5, which is a picture of the gospel. To erase gender distinctions is to begin to erase the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's big. And we want to stay far from that. So the, the wives' submission is, is, first of all, based in the fact that, that the Lord has given husbands a place of headship, which we'll see what that looks like in just a minute. Just stay with me. But secondly... It's based in the fact of Christ's lordship. Now this erases a lot of the excuses because many would say, well, what about the wife who has a husband who's not treating her as he ought to, who's not doing the things that he ought to be doing? And of course, ultimately, if we were to think about that statement in its reality, every husband would have to say, you know what? 
I'm not loving my wife as Christ loved the church. We'll get to that verse here in just a moment. I'm not measuring up to the standard that God has set. And so if that were the only thing, if, if wives got an out, if their husbands weren't measuring up, then every wife would have an out from these verses and it would become meaningless. Again, look at it with verse 24. He says, Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. And the question that that verse begs is, how, do, how does the church submit to Christ? And the answer you're looking for is, as Lord. The church submits to Christ as Lord. When every person that, that finds their way into this baptism, the, the profession of faith that we're saying is that Jesus is Lord. He's the boss. He gets to call the shots. He gets to have the, not just the front seat in my life. He gets the keys and gets to sit in the driver's seat of my life. No more God is my co-pilot business, but God gets to take control, rule over my life. And so because of the lordship of Christ over his church, a wife can look at her husband and choose to willingly submit herself to him in a way that honors God. The second part of our scripture this morning, though, makes that a whole lot easier and a whole lot clearer. Let's talk for a few minutes this morning about a husband's love for his wife. Again, this picture is going to set us up to to finish our talk today uh, thinking about the relationship between Christ and the church and the relationship between each of us and the body of Christ known as the church. This husband's love for his wife is described there starting in verse 25. And just as Paul has way more to say to the husbands than he does to the wives, that's where we're going to spend the bulk of our time this morning. But he starts out saying this love that a husband has for his wife is to be a self-sacrificing love. The Greek word used here for love is the word agape, which is the love of God for his people. It is a selfless love. And I want to just say the reason that Paul uses the picture of marriage here to describe the relationship between Christ and his church, he uses that picture rather than using the picture of a dating relationship. There's a big difference if you didn't know it. I want to give you some of those differences this morning. But I think there's a huge reason why Paul didn't refer to the relationship between Christ and his church as a dating relationship. Let me give you the first one of those reasons Well, first of all, let's look at verse 25 again. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, and he gave himself up for self-sacrificing love. But we know that dating love, if you can even call it that, is self-serving. At its core, dating relationships are very self-serving. Here's how it works. I'm going to enter into a relationship with you or I'm going to pursue a relationship with you because there's something about you that I think will serve me. I like the way you look and you'll look really good on my arm. People will be really impressed that I'm dating you because I'm dating someone that's definitely out of my league. I want what I can get out of the relationship, what I can get out of you. And when the day comes that you no longer meet my needs, you no longer are serving me the way that I want to be served, you're no longer doing what I want, when I want, and how I want, then I'm going to end that relationship, and I'm going to move on to the next person who I think is perhaps going to be a better fit for me, who is going to meet more of my needs. Maybe they're a little better looking. Maybe they're a little more talkative. Maybe they do the things that I like to do. Again, self-serving, I'm going to do that until that person no longer meets my needs in the way I want my needs and then I'm going to move on to the next person and I'm going to repeat this cycle over and over and over and over and over again until one day maybe I will find the one this is how it works, right? I'm going to find the one who is going to ultimately meet all of my needs and then I will perhaps walk down the aisle with that person say my I do's and then enter into a self-serving marriage I think this is one of the biggest problems in our society that has led us into this place where we're committophobics. You see, when it's all about me, as long as you're doing what I want you to do, then all is well. But the day that you stop doing what I want you to do and I see an opportunity to sever that relationship and go on to someone else who perhaps will do more of what I want than you did, then I'm going to do that. 
And this dating cycle goes on and on and on and on to where we literally train ourselves to engage in a series of expendable relationships. One day, not too long from now, I'm going to spend a Sunday just talking about dating. This is a soapbox that my wife hears me get on pretty often. I hate the whole culture of it. I wish I had time to share with you about my own experiences in this ugly thing. Uh, There's a reason why I'm very passionate about this because of my own experiences and because of what I've seen it do in creating in our culture, especially in our young people, and especially in the problems in our marriages, this idea that relationships are disposable. That ultimately people are disposable. And see, when we begin to fall into that mindset, what happens is we ultimately carry that mindset over into our relationship with the Lord. So where if God is not doing everything that we want Him to do, if our lives aren't working out the way that we wanted them to work out, if He's not answering all our prayers in the way that we want them answered, if I don't feel of His, His presence and, I, and he's, he's not giving me all this joy and love and happiness that I know I deserve, then I'll distance myself from Him. And I'll distance myself from His church. And guys, I see it all the time. And you see people's lives begin to fall apart. And often the first part of that falling apart has been a distancing from the one who wants to help you put the broken pieces back together. But this dating love is self-serving. On the flip side, we see that Christ died for the church. When it says that he gave himself up for her, this was literal death. He laid his life down on the cross. And what did he have to gain? No, really, I want you to think about that question. What did Christ have to gain from the cross? I know this is one of those questions you may not have ever thought about before, and this may change the way that you view the gospel, and I think it's a necessary change. Because so often we get in our heads that, well, Jesus went to the cross because he wanted to gain for himself a people. He wanted to save us from sin. So Jesus was gaining for himself us because we're really that good. We're we're really worth saving. That's At least that's what we convince ourselves of. Or perhaps Jesus went to the cross because he wanted to gain for himself glory. He wanted to make his, his name known and do something that nobody else could do. So he's going he's to rescue all mankind and he's going to gain for himself more glory. Or perhaps Jesus wanted to, to gain uh, for himself You can fill in the blank with all manner of things that that I think have been injected into this gospel. But if you really look at the heart of the gospel, if you look at what the Bible teaches about who Jesus is and what he was doing that day at Calvary, you begin to get this really sincere picture that Jesus was engaging in the one true act of self sacrifice he had absolutely nothing to gain for himself when jesus christ laid himself on the cross it was the god of all creation through whom all things were made all things were made by him and for him he had nothing to gain he did not need us and he did not need more glory He was perfectly glorious in every way. There was nothing that could be added to his personhood. See, so often we will act in the best interests of others as long as those best interests line up with my best interests. I'll act in your best interests as long as that somehow adds to me as well. But when we talk about true self-sacrifice, that Christ was going to the cross with absolutely nothing to gain for himself, He was not going there because it was somehow going to add to his glory, going to somehow give him more notoriety, somehow going to give him more people to worship him. That was none of those things were the reason for the cross. The reason for the cross was he was doing it completely for you. You had to gain. 
you had to gain from the cross. Christ died again for His church. And again, I want to say to us this morning, the Lord has not called us to some kind of lone ranger Christianity. He's not called us to be living on some desert island somewhere spiritually. He has called us into a body. And I know I've heard since I was a little boy, well, if you had been the only sinner on earth, Christ would have still died for you. And that's a wonderful platitude. But folks, that's not what happened. It says here Christ died for His church. And as long as we're living in this individualistic, Americanized version of Christianity, we miss out on the beauty of the church. As long as I'm living in that place where all of my walk with the Lord is about me, 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 and I forget about His body, it leaves me in a place where I can just go on dating the church or just ignore it all together. Secondly, this morning, a husband's love for his wife is not only self-sacrificing, but it is spirit-sanctifying. Look at verses 26 and 27. He says that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. That he might sanctify her, purify her, make her holy. You see, while his love is spirit-sanctifying, dating love is just simply sin-stained. You see, because in a dating relationship it's all about me, 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 that is the very basis for sinful behavior. So I'm going to interact with this person and get from them whatever I can get from them. And when I have gotten everything that I can get from them, just like that bag of chips, I'm going to discard it. Just like that Coke can, I'm going to throw it away and go after the next one. You see this so much in our society, and we even train ourselves. Even if, even if we're not giving ourselves away physically, there are these deep emotional attachments that are made and then broken and made and then broken, and we train our hearts to avoid real, true, and lasting commitment. And even when we come to the place where we walk down the aisle, there's this great temptation in us to not say, till death do us part, just to say, well, till somebody else better comes along. Now that whole, you know, in, in sickness and in health thing, I, I'll take the health, but if you get sick, I'm done. The whole in, in poverty or in wealth, I, I'll take the wealth part, but man, you can't pay the bills and I'm out of here. We see this. He's called us to 365 days a year commitment, and yet we say, well, how about 364? Can I just get one day a year? I think this would work. Husbands, I want you to try this when you go home. See if you don't get slapped in the face. Say, honey, here's what I'm thinking about. Let's be really faithful to each other 364 days a year. One day a year, just one day, we can go and do whatever we want with whoever we want, however we want. Just, just one day a year, honey, what do you think? Now, guys, how many of you are not going to get slapped upside your head? And you're going to deserve it. But, man, we act like that. We act like commitment is something that we can do part-time when God has created us in such a way that it just doesn't work that way. This Spirit-sanctifying love comes to us because we see Christ washing the church with His Word. Husbands, this is a call to you that the Word of God should have a prominent and even preeminent role in your relationship with your wife. When was the last time you all talked about the Scriptures? When was the last time that you prayed together? When was the last time that you washed your, your wife with the Word? This is a challenge to myself today and to every man in this room, but ultimately, again, he's talking about Christ and the church here. The Bible says that faith comes by hearing the Word of God, and that's why when we come together as the body of Christ, I don't preach to you from a John Grisham novel. I don't pull out the Bhagavad Gita. I don't pull out the Book of Mormon. I pull out 
for you the one true and living God's holy word. And I say to you, this is the word of God. It's meant to transform your life. This is truth without any mixture of error. And it has a purpose and a plan for your life, which is to make you holy. God cares so much less about your happiness than he does about your holiness. And this morning as we dive into God's word together, that we would see in this word that which would wash us, would cleanse us, would make us more like Christ, would remove the spots, stains of sin. Thirdly, this morning, a husband's love for his wife is to be soul-satisfying. It's to be soul-satisfying, self-sacrificing, spirit-sanctifying, and soul-satisfying. Verses 28 through 30 says, In the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, he who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Now the first and the third point here for the husband seem almost self-contradictory. How can this love be self-sacrificing, and at the same exact time, be soul-satisfying. See, our world doesn't get that. How could a, a love that sacrifices self actually be satisfying to the same self that was sacrificed? It doesn't make any sense to our culture, but it makes perfect sense in light of the gospel. You see, when I sacrifice For my wife, when I lay down my life for her, when I consider her needs before my own, when I I lay those things down that bring her joy, when I give those things to her, I'm in very real way doing that for myself because we're one. That's where the one flesh relationship becomes so amazing. That when I'm sacrificing for my wife, I'm not really, in a real sense, I'm not really giving up anything. Because in giving to her, I'm giving to myself as well. It's what's good for her is also good for me. Now, does that make it self-serving? No. It doesn't make it self-serving. Because the difference is, in self-serving, I'm only doing it for me. I'm really only doing those things because my motive is more about me, me, me. But in this kind of love, I'm doing it for her. At the same time, the byproduct comes back to me, and I find myself satisfied in a love that sacrifices for her. This is the more excellent way that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 13. But this dating love that we've been talking about, dating love is never satisfied. Because it's all about me, 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 because it's stained with sin, then it's never really satisfied. It's, it's It's a bottomless pit. As long as I'm focused on the things that are all about me and as long as I'm living in light of all these disposable relationships, the reality is I'm never going to be satisfied. And we see people living their entire lives in this place. They go from one relationship to the next. They go from one church to the next looking for the perfect relationship, looking for the perfect church, looking to have all of their needs met and not realizing all the while They're dropping all of their hopes and dreams into a bottomless pit that's never going to be filled because the only one that was meant to truly fulfill you is the God who created you. You were created with a God-shaped vacuum that will only be filled by Him. And as long as you're trying to fill it with other relationships, with religious duties, with whatever suits yourself, you'll never be satisfied. And on the flip side, we see Christ caring for the church as his own body. Verse 30, so beautiful. We are members of his body. And there are some I know who would say, as we talk about, we've talked about over the last couple of months, this issue of, of church membership. And I would encourage you today, if you are not a member of a local church where you are serving week in, week out, where you're worshiping with other believers, where you're growing together in Christ, if that's not you, I'm going to give you a challenge today to step up to the plate. But we see so many today that refuse to do so. 
who would even say, well, we don't see church membership anywhere in the Scriptures. Well, I can't help but read the book of Ephesians and see from beginning to end there's this call to us to step up and say, I do to the one who did everything for us. To commit ourselves to Christ in such a way that we we don't shy away from a commitment to the church. Let me give you a a picture to kind of close our time up together. 1 Peter chapter 2. In 1 Peter chapter 2, he, he says, as you come to him, as you come to Christ, and, and that's what we do as, as followers of Christ, we, we're coming to him, and this is not just a one-time thing that a while back, you know, I made this decision for the Lord, and now I've just gone on to live however I want to live, because now I've got my ticket to heaven in my back pocket. This is the Americanized version of Christianity that so many of us bought into. Now that I've got my ticket to heaven in my back pocket, I can just go do whatever I want to. No, he says, as you come to him, He's a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, you're being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ Jesus. And so let me give you an illustration to kind of wrap our time up together in the Word today. I want you to consider yourself as a brick. And he says we're living stones, but I'm going to use a brick as an example this morning. And for so many of us, the way that we live out our walk with the Lord is as lone bricks. Now, a lone brick may be useful for smashing out a window or propping open a door. But a brick was created for a purpose, was it not? A brick has a particular purpose that it can only accomplish in conjunction with other bricks. Uh, Let me show you what I mean with a a quote from Charles Spurgeon. He does a great job with this, much better than I ever would. He said, now I know there are some who say, well, I've I've given myself to the Lord, but I I don't intend to give myself to any church having a conversation he says so i say now why not and they answer because i can be just as good a christian without it and i say are you quite clear about that you can be as good a christian by disobedience to your lord's command as by being obedient there's a little bit of sarcasm there on charles spurgeon's part so he gives them this illustration there's a brick what is the brick made for it's made to build a house It is of no use for the brick to tell you that it's just as good a brick while it's kicking about on the ground by itself as it would be as part of a house. Actually, it's a good-for-nothing brick. So, he says, you rolling stone Christians, don't believe that you're answering the purpose for which Christ saved you. You're living contrary to the life which Christ would have you live, and you are much to blame for the injury you do. So we're living in this half-hearted society that's lacking in commitment, even a fearing commitment. We're watching marriages dissolve right and left all around us. Things begin to get harder. Things begin to get uneasy. That People begin to go their separate ways. And the very picture that we've seen here in Ephesians 5 is dissolving all around us. And Jesus is calling us to something so much greater. He's calling you not just to be a lone brick, but to be a brick in the wall. The wall of God's house that he is building. And when Christ died, he did not just die for a bunch of individuals who could live out their lives on their own. He died for his church. And so for us to think and to buy into this idea that we can somehow honor the Lord and walk with Him while having nothing really to do with His church, while just idly dating His church and going through this revolving door of relationships with His church just like we do in every other area of our lives is a false notion. Would you look with me? We're going to end here this morning. Verse 31 takes us all the way back to the book of Genesis. 
God's original plan for men and women, Paul refers to it here in verse 31. He says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then Paul goes on as we started in verse 32 saying, Hey, I'm talking about Christ and the church. Talking about a commitment that says, Till death do us part. I'm talking about a a commitment that says, I'm going to stick it out when times get tough. I'm talking about a commitment that even when the pastor says something that sounds a little stupid to you, or when the music maybe doesn't fit your fancy, or, or when the programs don't line up with exactly what you would do if you were in leadership, or, or, or when things don't exactly go your way in terms of the church's decisions, or when uh, some crazy young pastor decides to move the church into a gym, or when you figure out that that crazy young pastor doesn't really have any idea what he's doing as a pastor, he's just making it up as he goes along. When you, when you get to those places, you begin to see, you know what? This, this body called the church is really kind of a mess. And our church right here, I'm going to speak about us for a moment, Corinth, just for a second. There's a lot of things we're not really very good at. We really, really stink at follow-up. We don't do a good job visiting our members very well, those that are in the hospital. There's a lot of areas where we fall really, really short. We're kind of a mess. We don't have a lot of structure. Our bylaws are very, very lacking, as has been pointed out to me on various occasions. There's a lot of things structurally that we're just kind of a mess. But let me just say to you this morning, church, Christ died for you. He bought you with his blood. And that was no dating-sized commitment for him. He laid it all down for you. And so for us to operate in this relationship with him and his body, again, you don't get to have the head without the body. It doesn't work that way. For us to operate in relationship to him, like this is just some kind of a dating relationship, demeans the whole basis for the gospel. And what he's calling us to is what he said here at the very beginning. So a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That word that says hold fast in the, in the, in the King James Version, you may remember it says uh, leave his father and mother and cleave unto his wife. The, the Hebrew word there means to be cemented together. To be cemented together in such a way that if those two were separated, both would be irreparably damaged by the separation. And so my question to you as we finish out today is are you submitted to the church? Now I know you thought Ephesians 5 was talking about husbands and wives, and it is, but it's a greater, it's an illustration of a greater truth. I'm going to ask you this morning, are you really cemented to the church? And I'm not talking about the church universal. I'm not even sure if you, you could even make an argument that the Bible never really speaks about this universal church that we all talk about so often. It speaks much more, I'll tell you this, about the local church, the local body of believers, those that are gathering together each week to worship the Lord, to walk together in Christ, to work for the expansion, growth of His kingdom. My question is, how cemented are you to the church? Let me leave you three questions that will help you to examine this. First of all, are you committed to worship weekly with other Christ followers as a member of a local church? Notice I said member. One of the, one of the defining characteristics of Corinth Baptist Church in, in the eight-plus years that I've been here is uh, we have a lot of folks that attend for a very long time without joining. Now, please don't hear that as a criticism if that's for you this morning. Just understand, I do believe that the Bible teaches church membership because that's commitment. I could go on dating my, I could still be in a dating relationship with my wife, but that's not what God called me to. He called me to commit, to man up, and to ask her to marry me with it, which I put off for longer than I want to admit this morning. And if that's you this morning, understand the Lord's calling you in to a place of commitment. 
and to a place where worship becomes not just something that you'll do if no better offer comes along, but something that is a vital part of your life. This gathering here on Sunday morning should not just be something that you do on Sunday morning because you don't have anything better to do. It should be lifeblood for you. It should be a source for you that you would not miss unless there was some catastrophic reason to miss, that you want to be here so badly that you'll reorchestrate. I know some of you in, in this room, you have reorchestrated your lives, your jobs. You've given up promotions and other opportunities in order to make this a priority, and I commend you for that. But is that where you are this morning. Secondly, are you committed to walk with Christ and to do so in such a way that you're actually walking with other Christ followers in a small group growing together? And I know some of you are going, oh man, did you really have to go there this morning? All y'all ever talk about is small groups. Well, guess what? It's going to get worse. It really is. It's going to get worse because we are growing to the place where we're understanding. I'm going to tell you, for me and myself as, as your pastor, I'm understanding more and more the importance of this because I'm seeing it in my own life. What's happening for me on Sunday nights at, at Donnie Sanders' house is, is more than about having meat and chips. Those of you that go to that small group might get that joke. That's all Donnie ever wants to eat is meat and chips. Nothing green. <laughs> Sorry, Donnie, I called Jed on that one. But to really walk together, to grow in Christ together. Again, no man on an island. I don't get to just come into this large group worship gathering where I can be anonymous. I can just do my own thing and nobody really has to know me. I don't have to really know anybody else. I don't really have to invest in these relationships. I can kind of, as some husbands do, I can live in the house but never really invest in my home. That's how a lot of Sunday morning only Christians do. But God's calling you to something deeper, something greater, something more beautiful. And finally, are you committed to work for Christ using your gifts in a ministry in the church? Ephesians 4, he's given every one of us gifts. Spiritual gifts that are meant not to be pocketed, not to be used for our own benefit, not just to be pulled out on special occasions. But he has given you gifts that were meant to be used for what purpose? Building up the church. And so if you've heard a lot about the church this morning, you've heard it rightly. And I believe that for every one of us, there's a step of faith here that will take you deeper in your relationship with Christ and at the same time will take you deeper in your relationship with His church. For some of you, that means that means getting out of the place of being that sporadic attender and saying, I do, to, to membership, whether it's here or wherever, wherever the Lord leads you, I would say, Become a member. Worship there. Give your life to those folks and let them give their lives to you. That's what Christ is calling you to. For some of you, it's stepping up and, and getting into a small group. Maybe that's the scariest thing you've ever heard of in your life. Like, really? We're going to go to somebody's house and we're going we're gonna to eat together and, and we're going to actually talk about the Bible and we're going to do that weird, strange thing that Christians do called accountability? Yeah, and it's going to be beautiful and it'll become one of the things you value most in life if you'll really do it. With your heart. And some of you guys need to step up in ministry. You have gifts that you are hiding, that you are burying, that need to be used for the building up of this church. And so what's the next step for you this morning? I invite you just to bow your heads for a moment, close your eyes, and just take, take a quiet moment to consider these three things. Worship, walk, and work. Three simple W's. Where do you find yourself in relation to these three things? Is worship a priority for you or just an option in case nothing else better comes along? And I'm talking about this Sunday morning gathering. Again, this is not to heap guilt on you. If there are life circumstances that keep you from this, those things are all understandable. But is this anywhere near the top of your list of priorities? Or just an optional activity way down the list? And where are you this morning in relation to a small group? Your walk with Christ, which must be 
biblically, a walk with other believers. Again, no Lone Ranger Christianity called for here. But vital relationships. Linking arms with other believers and walking toward Christ. Loving one another, holding one another accountable, speaking the truth and love to one another. Where are you in that? And finally, are you working for Christ? If you have been redeemed by Jesus Christ, He has given you not just the gift of eternal life, but He has given you at least one spiritual gift that was meant to be used for the building up of His church. Are you serving Him? Working for Him? Not out of some obligation because you feel like you ought to, but because of a deep devotion that you want to because you love Him. As you consider these three W's this morning, my one question to you would be, what is the next step for you? What is the Lord calling you to? What is He speaking to you about this morning? And will you be willing to take a step out of that dating-like place and into a marriage-like commitment that truly says, I do to the one who laid his life on the cross for you. Would help us this morning to respond to your word to love you with our lives, not just with our words. To make a lifelong commitment to you and to your church, the church for whom you died. Lead us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to respond this morning as we stand and share this song together. Kent and I will be here at the front and if we can pray with you and help you in any way. We invite you to respond this morning. What would the Lord have you to do in terms of your next step with Him? You consider that as we sing together.